This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. know who else covered this uh this is true crime news that's going to lean into what we're talking about today uh which is going to lead into like the next thing that we're doing henry lee did you hear about this i did he's one of those people over time i have i've, I've always sort of wondered like uh if he was for real and, and i've talked about like cyril wecht and like some of these other guys along the way Henry Lee, for people who don't know, he's from China. He was actually born in Kangshu. Now, he, I think he had 13 siblings, or maybe he was one of 13 siblings. So he was born in China, and his family, they moved to Taiwan in the late 1940s. And his father had been traveling separately from the rest of the family uh, and on January 27, 1949, he died uh, when the Taiping sank. It was a big passenger ship. So he he grew up with no dad. He never had any interest in, in going to, a, a, to college, to a university. But he did go to the Central Police College there, which is a service academy in Taiwan. And he graduated with a bachelor's degree in police administration. And the idea there is like it's – it's tuition free and, and you get this stipend to go there, but then you have to work like afterwards for the police agencies that sponsor the central police college. He began his work with a police department there and he rose to the rank of captain by the age of 22. So he was the youngest captain in Taiwanese history. In 1965, he immigrated to the United States so in 1972, after he had come to the United States, he gets his BS in forensic science from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. He went on to study science and biochemistry at, at uh, NYU. Uh, he got a master's degree in, I think, 74, and then he got his PhD sometime shortly thereafter. Currently, he is the director of forensic research and training um, at the Henry Lee Institute of Forensic Science and Distinguished Chair Professor at the University of New Haven, which is up in Connecticut. He was the Chief Emeritus of the Connecticut State Police from 2000 to 2010. And then he had been the Commissioner of Public Safety for the state of Connecticut from 98 to 2000. He had also served as the state's chief criminalist and the director of the forensic lab from 1978 to 2000. So he's like had a lot of positions uh, in the state of Connecticut. So he's also written a ton of books. He has been the host of a show on uh, Court TV, which I think is called The Case Files of Henry Lee or something to that effect. Dr. Henry Lee, maybe. It highlighted his work on a variety of well-known cases. And he has been on television a lot. Now, where I know him from is the O.J. Simpson case. And he was also a part of the Lacey Peterson trial. He has done a lot of stuff. 
I cannot express like how much stuff he's done. He was on the blood spatter anal- uh, analysis team during the trial of Michael Peterson, which we talked about Michael here. He also was one of the prosecution's expert witnesses in the Cal Harris trial, which is the September 11, 2001 uh, killing of his wife, uh, Michelle Harris. And we've talked about that a little bit. What is wild about uh, Henry Lee is starting in 2019, the Connecticut Supreme Court, they issued a conclusion that Henry Lee had erred in his testimony during a murder trial. He had said that a towel tested positive for blood, but he had not tested it at all. And later tests found there was no blood. Now, the Daily Beast has since come out and started questioning other cases that Lee has been involved in. Um, I think the title of the article was something like, How Many Murder Cases Did Celebrity Forensic Scientist Henry Lee Botch? Lee did claim that he tested the towel at a press conference on June 17th of, of 2019. He said that chemical screening tests for blood were done at the crime scene on the date of that homicide. A judge found that he was liable for fabricating evidence in, in a case on July 21st, 2023. And that's sort of how he gets on our radar today. Now, you know who Henry Lee is, right? I do. Mm-hmm. And one of your first questions was maybe maybe he didn't test it, but he assumes a trusted person had, had tested it, right? Well, I have to, yes, something like that. Like this was some sort of... Uh, forgivable error or, uh, you know, like a mistake because I don't, recently I, I, we were talking about DNA evidence and I said that all of the sort of drama surrounding cases where the lab techs were fudging results were over. Right. And I, I actually, I held Henry Lee in I mean, I don't really think about him that much, but like if you say his name, I would hold him with a certain amount of esteem, right? Yeah, same here. As far as he seemed to always be, I felt like he was fair. Of course, anything like this, it sends everything you've ever thought about somebody into question, right? Which I think was the whole point of this. But um, I did initially try to sort of explain it away. Yeah, I, that that was sort of my first reaction to this as well. And I want to pull from, I think this is a New York Times source that I pulled. It was one of those things where I, it took me a minute because when I went to read it, it was behind a paywall at first and I had to hunt around a little bit. I think the same thing happened to you. Uh, no, it's actually from the Quran. Okay, so this is out of, the title is U.S. Court, uh, colon, Forensic scientist Henry Lee liable for fabricating evidence that sent two teens to prison for murder. I'll get this right in a second. Um, this is subscriber-only content, but it has been made public. It's uh, Edmund Mahoney has it. Uh, it was first published July 21st, 2023, and it was briefly like kind of a headline article up there. Uh, here's what it says in there um, in terms of, of, of this ruling and like what it kind of means. A federal court has ruled that world-renowned forensic scientist Henry Lee fabricated evidence that sent two innocent teenagers to prison for 30 years, and he is liable for what could be millions of 
dollars in damages in their wrongful conviction suit. Right there, that's a huge tale. The unusual pretrial ruling for Sean Henning and Ricky Birch was one of several issued Friday by U.S. District Court Judge Victor Bolden. Um, and he's come up on here before. I'm not entirely certain how he um, came up, but I remember his name being in the podcast at one point. The decisions meant that a sensational wrongful conviction suit against Lee, eight police investigators in the town of New Milford, will go to trial without a settlement. In addition to finding against Lee, the court ruled that a jury could reasonably find that state and New Milford police fabricated or concealed evidence that would have undermined the case against these two teenagers. In Lee's case, it'll be a hearing in damages rather than a trial. Jurors, jurors will be instructed that because of Bolden's ruling, Lee has been found liable for fabricating the crucial evidence, and the jurors only need to decide how much he owes Henning and Birch in damages. It's a really unusual ruling. Bolden's ruling was also critical of the Office of State Attorney General William Tong, which is defending Lee and several former state police detectives in the case. Bolden said, there is an immunity defense that could have been exercised in an effort to protect Lee from a pretrial liability judgment, but Tong's office inexplicably failed to do so. Bolden wrote that the Attorney General's office acknowledged that it unintentionally neglected to move more quickly when it became clear to counsel that testimonial immunity was a viable and, in fact, meritorious defense for the defendant. Because of, of the delay, Bolden wrote that Lee was not entitled to use this defense. But Bolden also said that based on the record in the case, Lee could have been found liable for fabricating evidence even if he had presented an immunity defense. This is a really big deal. I don't think people realize like how big a deal that part of this ruling is. Well, and so this is a civil case. Yeah, uh, it's a civil case that's tied back to a criminal case. Yes. Correct. Uh, and the people that were wronged, uh, the two guys that were wrong, they're now bringing, you know, they want money. They want to be made whole from the time they spent and wrongfully spent in, in prison, right? Correct. I do find it interesting. So it's a civil trial, not a criminal trial. And a an attorney, legal representation, uh, not doing something that they should do. At least in criminal trials, normally that would be ineffective assistance of counsel, right? Yeah, if you're waiting for me to chime in, it absolutely would be. And so I wonder, like, if there is any sort of appeal here. And then I wonder, like, how does that happen? <laughs> how do they miss this huge defense? Now, it looks like it looks like they didn't file a an affirmative defense for any of the people that they were representing, right? That's um, what it kind of says here, yeah. And so Henry Lee is just the only one that really has any sort of name to sensationalize with regard to this. Right. The way that this could go, it's got to go all the way through the process, but it could come back to there being some appellate steps here in a way. Um, it's I, a I'm not sure if it, if that's a remedy or not, honestly. I, I don't know. It's just what popped into my mind because it's pretty clear, at least from the wording from the reporter, it's pretty clear that somebody messed up, right? Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a huge deal. A spokesman for William Tong's office, uh, they said in the course of this article that the office was reviewing the decision and evaluating next steps. Uh, the reporter here says that messages were left for Lee. Now, Henning and Birch, they were a pair of drug-abusing teenage burglars living, uh, packed with everything they owned, in a stolen car. When detectives made them t 
top suspects in the 1985 murder of Everett Carr, who was a retired truck driver that lived with his daughter in New Milford. The investigation that led to these murder convictions, it was done by the Connecticut State Police and the New Milford detectives. So the attorneys for these guys said, this case is a travesty. And that's for uh, Craig Robe and Jim Cousins, who were involved in winning the reversal of the two convictions at the uh, state Supreme Court level in 2018. So these are the guys that got Sean Henning and Ricky Birch, they're from the team that got these guys off. And he says that Sean Henning and Ricky Birch are innocent. They went to prison for 30 years and the real killer got away. Henry Lee's fabrication is outrageous. And the federal court also said that a jury could find that state police and new Milford police engaged in misconduct. It is well past time for the state and new Milford to compensate these innocent men for their, their decades of unimaginable abuse and trauma. Carr's murder was exceptionally bloody, and blood evidence dominated the separate trials of Henning and Birch. Lee's trial testimony said that he found traces of blood on uh, on a bath towel. Uh, this is testimony that courts have called at best erroneous and at worst false information. So they're saying Lee testifying sent Henning and Birch to prison for 50 and 55 years, respectively. Carr had been stabbed 27 times and his juggler vein was slashed. The hallway in which his killers trapped him was so saturated with blood that detectives had to build a makeshift ramp to get to the body without contaminating any evidence. The two teens argued, among other things, that they couldn't have killed Carr because not a speck of blood was found on them or any of the cluttered junk in the cramped, stolen car where they were living. When the state Supreme Court vacated the two convictions 33 years after the murder, it noted that the car and its contents had not been cleaned between the night of the murder and the seizure of the car by detectives. Lee's trial testimony was the prosecution's answer. At the time of Carr's death, Lee was building a national reputation as a forensic scientist and could be counted on to be president with state police, major crime investigators, and any high-profile scenes. Lee testified at both trials that he found the stained towel in an upstairs bathroom and that his repeated tests on the light stains proved that they were made by blood. The prosecutors then used Henry Lee's testimony to argue to the juries that 17-year-old Henning and 18-year-old Birch could have used the towel to clean themselves off of blood. When it reversed the convictions, the Supreme Court found and Bolden agreed Friday that there was no blood on the towel. In addition, the court said Lee had no way of knowing that what the stain on the towel was because neither he nor anyone in his lab tested it before the teams were convicted. When the stains on the towel were finally tested in 2008, part of a last-ditch appeal by Henning and Birch, the results showed they weren't made by blood, but some inorganic substance. Lee had continued to insist that he did test the towel and that the result was positive for blood. During the litigation leading to Bolden's decision, he claimed he had personal photographs stored in his home that confirmed his claims about the testing. So Bolden adapted the argument by Birch and Henning and recently conceded to by the state that Lee never tested the towel. Lee's own expert on photographic evidence conceded the photos did not contain any evidence of testing. This is a huge deal. It is. I just want to point out that if you listen to the content of what they're stating there, um, you've got Henry Lee. This is, I believe the trial was in 1989 for a crime that occurred in 1985. So this would have been like, you know, a little before Henry Lee became sort of like famous for his role in trials, right? Yes. Okay. And so you've got him testifying and it's, 
uh, I understand that he basically said that there was blood on a towel. Now, it's my understanding he didn't link that blood specifically to these two guys, right? Correct. Okay. And the prosecution uh, did that with his testimony. Correct, but there, but there was no uh, indication that no DNA or anything was used. I mean, this this trial would have happened at a time where that wasn't happening yet, right? Yeah, correct. Um, okay, and so it falls sort of on this. It's because he testified a towel could have been touched by the killers cleaning up, and it was. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. It was in a bathroom near the crime scene. Yeah, so it's up, it's basically upstairs from the body. The idea is that they could have the reason they have no blood anywhere in their car or anywhere else on them was that they cleaned up, and that this bath towel is how they like dried off afterwards, and some of the blood got on there. That's the idea that's presented at trial. Is that this is proof. Of why they would have no blood anywhere else. Right. And it almost lacks. uh, Now, I'm not saying that he should have done that. And I'm also not, I I don't know if it could have been a mistake. You know, is there another towel perhaps that, you know how these things go, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Especially that much later. But I have trouble like really substantiating that Henry Lee is, well, I know, and it's, I know they're just alleging he's partially responsible for it, but like him making those connections, I mean, cause there was something on the scene with blood on it, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. And which, and then I was trying to get in the mindset of like what a jury would have expected back then. And I can't do it. Cause I, you know, I, I just don't know what it was like before DNA was being spouted everywhere. I know they did some blood typing or whatever, but it doesn't sound like any of that stuff came up. The fact that it was tested, you know, way later and it's not blood is what sort of ultimately undid this entire conviction. Yeah. I I feel like the leap without any sort of match, the leap was too big to begin with. Uh, the leap saying that just because there was blood on a towel, it, I mean, that doesn't tie it to anybody in particular without any sort of uh, forensic matching. Am, am I misunderstanding something? <laughs> no. Okay. So uh, this is sort of how it goes down. From the National Registry up at this is, so this is out of um, University of Michigan's law school. Do you follow any of the stuff over there? Sometimes. What they have to say about this case, it, it's a little more in detail. The idea is, uh, I don't know if you've ever, if audience members have ever seen how they break this down, but they sort of give you like a really rough overview of what happened. And, and here is how this went. At approximately 4.50 a.m. on December 2nd, 1985, Diana Colombo called an emergency dispatcher in New Milford, Connecticut, and said she'd found the body of her father, 65-year-old Everett Carr, in the house they shared. Carr had been stabbed 27 times. There was extensive blood on the floor and the floor of the narrow first-floor hallway near the kitchen. Two sets of bloody footprints were found throughout the house, and blood stains were found on items in Carr's bedroom dresser. Colombo told the police that some clothes, a VCR, jewelry, and several rolls of quarters were missing. Neighbors said they heard a car with a very loud muffler stop near Carr's home between 12.10 a.m. and 12.30 a.m. 
but they didn't see whether anybody got out of the vehicle. Investigators did not determine the time of the victim's death. Regardless, their theory was that the loud car would somehow be connected to the crime. Detectives with the New Milford Police Department theorized that Carr had been killed when he stumbled upon the burglars, and they quickly set about putting together a list of known burglars in the area, as well as the people known as fences, who bought stolen merchandise. In the nearby city of Danbury, they interviewed a fence named Douglas Stanley, and also learned about two young men, 17-year-old Sean, Fleming, Sean Henning and 18-year-old Ralph Ricky Birch, who had been committing burglaries in the area around the time of the murder. Just three days before Carr's body was found, Henning and Birch had stolen a 1973 Buick Regal. They'd driven it to New Hampshire to see Birch's mother over the Thanksgiving weekend. They were joined by Henning's girlfriend, Tina Yablonski. During the trip, the car got stuck in the snow, and the muffler was damaged when it was freed. The police interviewed Henning on December 4th. He had already learned about the murder from Stanley, whom police had interviewed the day, Carl, the day that Carr's body was found. Henning denied any involvement with that crime. He initially said nothing about the stolen Buick. Police showed him a picture of Carr, and one of the officers would later testify that Henning said he might have seen Carr around town and asked whether Carr was the man with the tattoos. Carr did have several tattoos. None of them were visible in the photo. Henning would later testify that he never made such a statement. Police interviewed Burtz the next day, and he acknowledged stealing a Buick, stating he needed a place to live. He said that he and Henning took the officers to the car, which was hidden in the woods near a local reservoir. After acknowledging their role in several recent burglaries, they were arrested. The car was filled with trash, food, clothes, blankets, and electronics. In a later court ruling, a judge would say it was evident it had not been cleaned. Crime scene technicians searched the car, but found no evidence tying Birch or Henning to Carr's murder. Similar searches of the surrounding area and parts of two reservoirs also came up empty. Police continued to question Henning and Birch, and both denied any involvement. Now, Henning urged the police to test everything so that he could clear his name. Two officers with the Connecticut State Police questioned Birch on December 9th. They would later testify that Birch spasmed and fell out of his chair when they showed him a photo of Carr in a pool of blood. A short while later, according to the officers, Birch looked at the photo, pointed to an area outside of the frame, and said, that's the bathroom there, or is that the bathroom there? The bathroom was in that location, and the officers said that when they tried to ask additional questions, Birch threatened violence, and the interview ended. The initial report the officers filed on this interview did not contain the bathroom comment. In the fall of 1986, Birch was arrested on an unrelated larceny charge by Detective Andrew Osif, who had, been ta- who had taken over the investigation for the state police. He learned about the alleged bathroom statement, and according to later testimony, he badgered the original officers to amend the report to include this statement. They did this in May of 1987. By the fall of 1987, the case was still unsolved, but Birch was now at the Manson Youth Institute, a prison for young offenders. He met an inmate named Robert Perugini. Osa visited Perugini, and he agreed to provide incriminating evidence against Birch. At the time, Perugini was eager to avoid transfer to a regular prison because he feared sexual abuse from older inmates. The state agreed to notify the state's pardon board about Perugini's cooperation, which ultimately resulted in his earlier release on his sexual assault conviction and to use his influence to prevent his transfer to regular prison when he turned 18. 
Separately, Ricky Birch became friends with another inmate at Manson named Todd Kosha. After their release in 1988, Kosha and Birch moved to Norfolk, Virginia. Kosha was arrested there on June 22, 1988, and Osa visited him on July 12, 1988. He was offered favorable sentencing and prosecution recommendations on the Virginia charges and outstanding Connecticut charges in exchange for testimony that Birch had confessed to murdering Everett Carr. During the early days of the murder investigation, when Henning was in jail on the burglary charges, he called his grandmother, Mildred Henning, and a close friend, Timothy Sathoff. Osef circled back to both of them in 1987 or 1988. Each would eventually testify that Henning had said that he was present at a burglary in which a man was killed, but that Henning also said he didn't commit the murder. Police arrested Henning on November 18th of 1988. Birch was arrested on January 25th of 1989. Both were charged with felony murder. Henning's trial began in April 1989 in Litchfield Superior Court. There were no eyewitnesses or evidence directly tying either defendant to the crime. Yablonski had given police several different timelines of the night of December the 1st, when she and Henning and Birch returned from New Hampshire, which provided an alibi for Henning and for Birch. At the trial, she testified that they got back to Connecticut, went over to Stanley's house in Danbury to get some cocaine, and then they drove the 15 or so miles back to her home in New Milford between 11.15 p.m. and 11.30 p.m. Two neighbors testified about hearing a loud car near Carr's house on the night of the murder, but neither viewed this car or the occupants of this car. Mildred Henning and Sathoff also testified about what they said Sean had told them about his involvement with the murder. Mildred Henning said that her grandson's incriminating statements had included his account of a dog getting killed during the incident. No dog had been killed, but Henning had heard incorrectly from Stanley around that time that he'd called his grandmother that an animal had died. Despite the substantial amount of blood on the walls and throughout the house, investigators found no biological evidence on Henning, Birch, or in the stolen car. To explain why, prosecutors relied on the testimony of Dr. Henry Lee, who at the time was the director of the Connecticut State Police Forensic Laboratory. Lee testified that although Carr had been brutally stabbed numerous times, including a cut to his jugular vein, the blood from his wounds had been spattered in an uninterrupted fashion, meaning there was nothing between Carr's body and the wall. Asking whether the assailants would have had blood on their persons, Lee said, my opinion is maybe. As part of his testimony, Lee used a crime scene photograph of an upstairs bathroom that showed two towels by the sink. Lee testified that the towels had tested positive for the presence of blood. Henning testified, and he denied any involvement in Carr's death. His attorney also put Columbo on the stand. This is Diane Columbo, the first person, the daughter. She had given conflicting statements to the police, first stating she had been home all night and she had heard her father coughing but did not check on him. Then she said she'd been out until 2.30 a.m. Finally, Columbo said she'd been out until 4.30 a.m. with a man who was not her boyfriend. That was why she initially lied to the investigators. In addition, she waited until 4.50 a.m. to call for help. And when she did, she exclaimed to the dispatcher, Oh, God, he's got a knife in his hand. But Henning's attorney didn't explore these issues in depth. He asked Columbo when she thought her father had eaten last and whether she had told anyone Carr was holding anything when she found his body. Columbo denied making that statement. 
During closing arguments, the prosecutor painted a vivid picture of Carr fighting for his life. He used Lee's testimony about the uninterrupted blood spatter to explain the lack of forensic evidence tying Henning to the crime. He also said that the assailants had cleaned themselves up before leaving. Remember, also the bloody towel in the upstairs bathroom, the prosecutor said. It gave them an opportunity to wash or to have some access to that sink. Henning's attorney argued that the state's case predicated on two teenage burglars committing a brutal murder without leaving any evidence connecting them to the crime was not to be believed. He also told jurors that Henning's grandmother was simply mistaken in what she had heard. Henning wouldn't have told her he killed a dog because he would have known that didn't happen. The jury convicted Henning on April 19th. Birch's trial began two months later. Many of the same witnesses, including the neighbors in Yablonsky, testified. Instead of Mildred Henning and Satoff, the state relied on testimony from Kosha and Perugini that Birch had made inculpatory statements. Basically, he had said that he had done it. On cross-examination, Kosha acknowledged that when Osip first interviewed him, he either answered incorrectly or didn't know many basic details of the crime to which he said that Birch had confessed. Lee again was the state's forensic witness. During his testimony, he referred to a photograph of the towels and testified they had been tested and shown to have blood on them. But he said he could not recall whether it was animal or human blood. Birch's attorney objected, arguing that the state had not established there was blood on the towel and had not admitted the towel into evidence. With the jury not present, the judge asked the prosecutor whether he would admit the towel. He said he was prepared to, but for now, he wanted Lee to just testify about the towel and any observations about the item. The judge overruled Birch's attorney, and Lee continued, now in front of the jury, stating that the photograph depicts the portion of the bathroom, do bathroom towels. This towel had a reddish smear, very light smear. Subsequently, that smear was identified to be blood. Colombo did not testify at Birch's trial. The witnesses were the dispatch who tried Colombo's 911 call, a neighbor of the car's who said he had seen the loud vehicle on the night of the murder, and that its taillights were different than the stolen Buick, and Kosha's parole officer, who testified that Kosha was a dishonest person. During closing arguments, the prosecutor didn't specifically refer to the towel, but testified that there was blood by the bathroom sink upstairs. The jury convicted Birch on June 23, 1989. Both men were sentenced on July 21, 1989. Birch received 55 years. Henning, 17 at the time of the murder, received 50 years. Okay, you follow me on the crime stuff there for a second? Okay, so now I'm going to go through sort of the legal process after this. So Birch and Henning began a series of appeals to the Connecticut state courts, and it revolves around whether their attorneys have been effective. But it also revolves around whether the state had failed to disclose what's known as exculpatory evidence. Eventually, several witnesses recanted their testimony. Sathoff recanted in 2008 and said that Henning never confessed to him about any involvement with Carr's death or the burden. He said Osif encouraged him to testify to that effect, convincing him that it would help Henning because it would show that Henning hadn't been the actual killer. Kosha also recanted in 2008 Yablonsky recanted to investigators with, so this is the girl that was with them, investigators with the Connecticut Innocence Project in 2010. She said that she left Stanley's house before 1230, but got home after one and then watched Barnaby Jones and went to sleep. She said the police confused her and kept pressuring her to change her timeline. 
Separately, prosecutors never disclosed an agreement between Yablonsky and the state to favorably discharge other pending charges she was facing prior to her testimony. These issues and others were combined into separate habeas petitions filed by Birch and Henning. Henning had been represented by James Cousins, who is from Centurion Ministries, and Craig Robb. Birch was now represented by a guy named Andrew O'Shea. Although Birch and Henning had been tried separately, their habeas hearings were combined before Judge Samuel Safaraza in Tallinn Superior Court in late 2015. The towel and Lee's testimony were what took center stage. And in 2008, the towel had been tested and no blood had been found. In addition, there was no report documented indicating any previous test. Attorneys for Henning and Birch argued that Lee had testified falsely and that prosecutors had compounded that false testimony by using his misstatement in two separate closing arguments. They noted that in the years since the convictions, DNA tests had excluded Henning, Birch, and Yablonsky from any evidence collected from the crime scene. It also excluded the victim from all evidence collected from the three of them. So nothing crosses over between Carr and his house with Henning, Birch, and Yablonsky and their stolen car. Right, but um, Lee never testified that it did. Correct. He, he did not. Or um, actually, nobody ever testified that it did. No, no. This was, for all intents and purposes, a whodunit, but we think these guys did. Furthermore, DNA testing revealed that the DNA of a third party on multiple items intimately connected to the murder, including a piece of the murder weapon, were found under the victim's body. So they had the DNA from the killer over time, but they didn't link to any of these people. The state argued that Henry Lee, by now famous for his role assisting the defense at the trial of O.J. Simpson and in the investigation into the death of John Benet Ramsey, had not committed perjury in his testimony at either trial in 1989. He had simply made a mistake that was one of harmless error. Because it was not perjury, the prosecution's burden to correct the mistake would lower, said the state. In a ruling issued on June 21, 2016, Stefaraza rejected the habeas petitions and wrote that the court concludes that Dr. Lee was wrong, but not lying under oath. Because of that, the burden was on Henning and Birch to prove the mistake, undermine the verdict, as opposed to the state having to show it was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. Stefarazzo also said that the witness recantations and other exculpatory evidence presented by Henning and Birch were either unreliable or inconsequential. I'm sorry, you have DNA on a murder weapon under a body that is not unreliable or inconsequential. They couldn't have planted that. And it would have changed changed the outcome of the case had there been DNA in 1989. The men then appealed to the Connecticut Supreme Court, and in their briefs, they argued that Sephiroth had erred, particularly when finding that Lee's false testimony was harmless. They also continued to find new evidence of innocence. A witness at both trials testified that he was sure that he heard a noisy car roll up near Carr's house on the night of the murder because he was up late watching the Johnny Carson show. But a review of TV listings indicated the show didn't air on December 1st, 1985. In separate opinions, the Connecticut Supreme Court granted both men new trials on June 14th of 2019. The opinion said that Lee had an obligation to review records and other material before taking the stand to ensure the accuracy of his testimony. Similarly, the prosecutor had an obligation to be familiar with the material evidence. 
The fact that neither Lee nor the prosecutor didn't know that Lee was not telling the truth was immaterial. To conclude otherwise, the court said, would permit the state to gain a conviction on the basis of false or misleading testimony, even though the error readily could have been avoided if the, if the witness merely had exercised some due diligence. The court also said that this error by the state was not harmless. The challenge in this case, the court said, was for prosecutors to explain how Birch and Henning violently killed Carr, but didn't get any blood on themselves or the stolen Buick. The towel offered one theory, and without it, the court wrote, the state's entire case could very well have collapsed. Birch was released from prison on July 13, 2019. Henning, because of his age at the time of the crime, had already been paroled in July of 2018. On July 10th of 2020, Litchfield State's attorney, Don Gallo, moved to dismiss the charges against Birch and Henning. She said that the witnesses had either died or recanted, and there was no forensic evidence linking either man to the murder. Judge Dan Shaman of Litchfield Superior Court granted the motion on that day. In a statement after Shaman's ruling, Birch and Henning said, we hope that the state will take responsibility for the profound human consequences of obtaining murder convictions and long terms of imprisonment through indisputable false or misleading testimony and arguments. We also remain hopeful that the state will use the forensic evidence that has been gathered and more sound law enforcement tactics to identify Mr. Carr's actual killer or killers. Birch told the Hartford Courant, they say the wheels of justice turn slowly. That's a bit of an understatement. I can't dwell on what happened. They took 30 years of my life, and I'm not going to give them any more by being angry. He wore a shirt that said, I am innocent. Henning's t-shirt said, I didn't do it. In December of 2020, Henning and Birch filed se federal, separate federal civil rights lawsuits against New Milford, several of its police officers, and Henry Lee, seeking compensation for the wrongful convictions. In 2022, both men filed state claims for compensation. And that all comes from Ken Otterberg. He wrote this up for the law school at the University of Michigan, which is it's under the National Registry of Exonerations. You can just you can search there by name. This is Sean Hennings. There's also one for Ricky Birch. They're almost identical. So I'm just doing the one to give you an example of like how all this went. What do you think of all that? So they... They attach Henry Lee's role in this because he is somebody that a lot of people that make the true crime circuit, they, they recognize his name, right? Yes. You know, so the crime happens in 1985. The trial is, is in 1989. And uh, at the time, Henry Lee was not, he wasn't yet well known. Uh, as well known as he ended up being, as he has ended up being now. I think that it is entirely possible, even without his testimony, these kids could have been convicted. I I can't really, I, I don't see what the point of him, uh, like, specifically setting out to lie about this would have been. Does, does that make sense? I mean, I understand I, the point that, they're trying to make. I'm just wondering, you know, through like court transcripts, if, you know, we could see, like, did they turn it into something that it wasn't? Yeah, they, they, I, this, okay. So from what I just read, this trial is a disaster. It really is. And like, to me, 
these tiny little things, like, for example, blood being on a towel in the bathroom, no more makes these two kids guilty of the crime than it would have made the police officers guilty of the crime or the neighbors guilty of the crime. And so I'm having trouble sort of piecing that together. I mean, you're not wrong. Like, it, this is like one of those things where looking at it, it's sort of a shock to the conscience to believe that these guys could be convicted. convicted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like that part alone is what sort of made me draw attention to it because I realized, I realized a lot of people were going to gloss over this. So I wanted to like sort of spell it out from two perspectives. One, I think that what Henry Lee did here is not good. And, and I say that because the dude has testified it so Many cases. Over 8,000 cases. Yeah. And like, so you like, okay. So I can scroll through like his, his, he's had his a, highlight reel. <laughs> he's had a 57 year career, investigated over 8,000 cases and never been accused of for testifying uh, intentionally incorrectly. This is the very first case that he's ever had to defend himself in with regard to what he does. I I don't I don't know. I would have to see some more information, but I feel like this was a huge leap to begin with getting them convicted. Again, so essentially Henry Lee's testimony, uh they you know, they ruled that it wasn't perjury or wasn't intentional false testimony. And essentially what they're saying is it wouldn't have mattered who the defendant was with Henry Lee's testimony that would have lent towards a conviction. Right. Yeah. But I don't know if you, I I don't know if you said this or if I read this, but like we're talking about a bathroom towel that had like a smudge of, of something on it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's later determined to be a chemical. And but the te- but the testimony was that there was blood on the towel and that Henry Lee knew it was blood because he had tested it right. Correct. And but and it came down to they were saying like oh the kids might have not had blood anywhere on them because they used this towel. But I saw a picture and we're talking about like just a smudge. So yeah. it wasn't like they were they would have been able to clean themselves completely, right, with the smudge on a towel. So, again, I'm not entirely putting all this together the way it's spun. I do think Henry Lee's name is, uh, you know, it's it's put in here because it sensationalizes it. I don't know. I think that in four years— it would have made logical sense to him that, like, well, of course I tested that towel for blood. Why wouldn't I have? Well, okay, so you said something, and I, I just want to mention, you're right. He's done a ton of cases. He's got some huge highlight reel big cases. Huge. But he has been accused before of doing something weird. In mm-hmm. May of 2007, Phil Spector's on trial for the shooting of Lana Clarkson. And the judge in that case, Paul Fiddler, who's a superior court judge in May of 2007, he he comes out, he says he concluded that Lee hid or destroyed a piece of evidence from the scene of actress uh, Lana Clarkson shooting. Lee denies the allegation, and he, he said, when he testified before Fiddler, 
he was astonished and insulted by claims of two former members of Spectre's defense team that he had collected a small white object that was never turned over to the prosecutors as law the law requires. There was it had a very narrow ruling on it, and the judge did not find that Lee had lied on the stand, but he did find that whatever the small white object was, that Lee had destroyed it or hid it from the prosecution, which means the defense didn't have access to it. Um, I should clarify that what I said, it was a quote from Lee that I had read somewhere. Oh, okay. I got you. You're right. You're right. Okay. I, but, I wasn't trying to say that that was like the truth of the situation. It's just what he said. You know, this guy, like even during that time that he was accused of that of the Phil Spector case, so, which is this whole other monster, um, he was still actively consulting on all of these cases. My problem with people like Henry Lee is if we cannot trust them to do all of the work, and I'm so, and that's me. Okay, I'm looking at this from the perspective that Henry Lee didn't do this on purpose. Like in this case, is the easiest one to sort of throw that out there. We're going to talk about one more of his cases, to sort of wrap up the episode in a minute. But like this part of that is, it could be a mistake. It's not the same as the Phil Spector trial in 2007 where the guy is like the judge is literally saying he took a piece of evidence from the scene and that he was supposed to, that's not a mistake. That's an accusation of, um, of wrongdoing. This could be a mistake, but either way, if we can't trust guys like Henry Lee, a lot of these big cases are going to have questions attached to them. And it's like, it's not like necessarily the current cases like post 2005 or whatever, but He's been testifying in all these cases since the 80s. And if any of these are wrong, then we're putting innocent people in jail with expert testimony. Uh, sort of. I mean, yeah, I guess that's the way it ended up playing out. I'm just not sure like how much of that was actually Henry Lee's fault. Because he, he didn't make any sort of definitive connection to these specific defendants. They, that was made through other things. But the connection is made when he gets up there and says they could have cleaned up because there's blood on that towel. Right. Except the picture of the towel clearly, I mean, it wouldn't have absorbed all the blood because my understanding was it was a bloody crime scene. The idea is they took a shower and they cleaned themselves up and potentially took towels and whatnot from the scene. And that was left behind to prove it. That's the story that they're going Which with. is fine. I mean, but st- again, it doesn't specific. Henry Lee never said that specifically they did that. Correct. He didn't say, I found their right. blood in the bathroom. He didn't make any sort of like forensic. Uh, I mean, it just, it didn't exist back then. The technology would have been in an infancy and it would not have been available uh, for him to even try to use. Right. Yeah. There could have been some blood typing done or whatever. Now, interestingly, they have, uh, you know, developed profiles from the evidence. And, you know, I don't think anybody's taken any steps towards trying to figure out who the actual killer was. I, I, do, I do not know the answer to that. I wondered it when we uh, started looking at this once the news came out that he was definitely going to be held liable. I waited a minute to see if there was going to be any kind of caveat to that. And I thought somebody would run with it. No well, one did. It's not okay. So, like you said, you said, what happens when all of a sudden all of 
the expert testimony is suddenly undermined, right? Well, at least the 8,000 cases here. Well, right. But like what, you know, what happens when, when that occurs? Well, I do think the specific connections are going to be less likely to have any sort of, it would have to be like a full blown mistake, right? Not just like, well, was it a mistake? Because you're talking about collecting samples, uh, comparing them, uh, developing a suspect's DNA profile and like doing a direct comparison, right? Yes. Um, and that kind of stuff is, is way different than sort of what was being said in this case. I, I think that the mistake made is the mistake made. And, and you know, I we could argue all over that, but whatever. Henry Lee made a mistake here. But I think the more important point of this is beyond just this expert's testimony being either, you know, intentionally wrong, mistakenly wrong, or just like in construed by the prosecution to the jury in a way that was like really wrong. Like it shouldn't overshadow the fact that like there was not a case here to begin with. I'm with you on that. I feel like this case itself is, it's problematic in ways that don't involve Henry Lee. And it's unfortunate that Henry Lee is now attached to this case from the perspective of... uh, It'll be damaging. Yeah, yeah, it it will be damaging. And so I wanted to put into perspective what what Henry Lee's life would have been like right before this had happened. So I picked a case that I want to talk to you about in sort of a sideline to this. Do you have any more on these two guys, like um, Henning and Birch and, and this murder? Now I'm interested to see like what ends up happening, and I I really wish that they would find whoever actually killed Carr. That, that would be fantastic. That's the ideal outcome here, is that these guys are compensated and then Carr's murderer is caught. Right, and will that happen? Well, who knows? I yeah, mean, who knows? I it's very frustrating. Like when I when I when I look at cases like this, I have concerns about the entire system if I stare at it too long. Well, you can't really fault an expert witness with good intentions, right? It's when the intentions are other than good. I, I don't know that this, it has been demonstrated that, that he had bad intentions necessarily because he didn't specify enough to really even point it in a bad, in a complete bad direction. In my opinion, it's just my opinion. Like, let's say that he had, you know, pretended that the blood type came back on the towel and the blood type matched the um, perpetrators, right? Like that would be something. Um, that would be something intentional, especially if they found out he never tested the towel for blood. But like that's not anything that happened. And so to me, just saying like there was blood at a crime scene on a towel and, you know, I tested it and it was there. I mean, he was going off of something, he, probably, he may have even had a memory of doing a test on something, and it just got lost in translation over time. And it seems like, to me, it would just have to be a whole lot more specific. But I do think that just about every single case where you've got somebody making a mistake, like a forensic expert witness making a mistake, uh, the case is going to fall apart. Yeah, it absolutely is. And That's one of the things I wanted to do here was to take a look at something else in this time frame. That's specifically what I wanted to do. And I picked a pretty big crime. I think we can cover it in like the time we have left. And and like, I I think it'll be okay. 
because uh, I don't think we have to go that deep with this particular crime. It's, in my opinion, the next one's cut and dried, and it ties to Henry Lee as well. I will say, okay, these guys' trials are taking place in 1989 for a crime that occurs essentially December 1st, 1985. So there's a little bit of a gap in there. But I was going to ask you, have you ever heard of the Richard Crafts trial? Yes, I have. Okay. So super brief overview. Uh, Helen Nielsen married a man named Richard Crafts in 1975, and they moved to Connecticut. She worked as a a flight attendant, and she was raising their three children. In 1986, so 1975, they get married. So nine, uh, nine years later, math, nine years later, in 1986, she begins to suspect that Richard, her husband, is engaged in extramarital sexual activity. She confronts him about a phone bill with a bunch of long-distance phone calls on it. They get into sort of an ongoing argument, and and it makes Richard angry that he's been confronted. So then Hella, she meets with a divorce attorney. She hires a private investigator named Keith Mayo. Keith Mayo snaps photos of Richard kissing another flight attendant outside of her residence in New Jersey which is a huge deal. On November 18th of uh, 1986, friends drop Hella off at the couple's residence after she had worked a long flight from Frankfurt uh, in West Germany, and she's never seen it again. That night, a big snowstorm hit the area, and the next morning, Richard said that he was going to take Hella and their children to his sister's house over in Westport. When he showed up at his sister's house, Hella was not with him. And over the next few weeks, Richard gave Hella's friends a variety of story as to why they were unable to reach her. He, was, he said that she was visiting her mother in Denmark and that she was visiting the Canary Islands with a friend. And then he went with, I, he simply didn't know where she was. Hella's friends were aware that Richard had a pretty volatile temper and they grew concerned. Hella had told some of them, if something happens to me, please don't assume it was an accident. On December 1st, the private investigator, Keith Mayo, reported that she was missing to the police. Richard Crass was known to local law enforcement for his work as a volunteer police officer. And in 1986, he had been working part-time as a police officer in the nearby town of Southbury. So when the private investigator took his concerns originally to the local police, they dismissed his concerns and saying, you know, Hello will show up at some point. She'll return. Mayo took his findings to the county prosecutor because he was convinced that Richard Crafts was somehow involved in Hella not being able to be reached or potentially having disappeared. The county prosecutor referred this case over to the Connecticut State Police. On December 26th, the day after Christmas, while Richard was vacationing with his children down in Florida, state troopers came and searched his home. And inside, they found that pieces of carpet had been taken out of the master bedroom floor. The family's nanny at the time recalled that a dark grapefruit-sized stain had appeared in an area of the carpet that had been missing. There was also a blood smear on the side of the bed's mattress. 
Richard's credit card records showed several unusual purchases around the time that Hella disappeared, including a freezer that was not found in the house, bed sheets, a comforter, and there was a charge on there for the rental of a wood chipper. Among papers that were provided uh, to a private investigator by Richard was a receipt for a chainsaw. That chainsaw was later found in Lake Zoar, which is a reservoir off the Housatonic River in Connecticut. A man named Joseph Hine, who was a local man who worked for the town of, of uh, Southbury and drove a snowplow in the winter, he said that on the night of November the 18th, hours after Hella had last been seen, uh, he was plowing the roads during the snowstorm and he noticed a rental truck that had a wood chipper attached parked close to the shore at Lake Zoar. That chainsaw that they found in Lake Zoar was covered in hair and blood, which would eventually be found to match Hella, both in blood type and then DNA. It was only after the search of the craft's house that Joseph Hine came forward and reported what he'd seen. He led detectives to this location, and they examined uh, the area around the water. you got to remember, it's really cold at the time, too. They found a lot of little pieces of metal, and they found up to three ounce, like so, like a really small amount of, uh, of kind of clumps of human tissue. They found the crown of a tooth. They found a fingernail that was covered in pink nail polish. They found bone chips, and they found two thousand six hundred and sixty bleached blonde human hairs, and they found O type blood which was consistent with Helicraft's blood type. This led police to conclude that the remains had been fed through the wood chipper that Richard had been seen towing and that had, that he had a credit card receipt for. And additionally, they found that chainsaw there under the water. Uh, the serial number on the chainsaw had been scrapped away, uh, scrubbed away, scrapped. I don't know. What is that? When you filed away, like when you take a, yeah, and the investigators were able to take the chainsaw to a, a lab and they were able to pull the, they do this with guns sometime. I've seen it done with acid. They were able to pull the serial number back out. They traced the serial number on this tool to the retailer who confirmed that, that Richard Crafts had been the one to purchase it. So investigators concluded that Richard struck Hella in the head with something blunt at least twice. She fell. This stained the carpet with blood. And then he kept her body in a freezer for hours until she was frozen solid. And then he cut her apart with a chainsaw and he put the pieces that he had cut apart with a chainsaw through the wood chipper, projecting the fragmented re remains into the back of the truck. And then he had gone to the water's edge and shoveled them out onto the shore. Uh, prosecution for this type of homicide requires an official determination of the death of the alleged victim. And typically that would be done by the identification of a body. But the body in this case is not available. So they used a forensic dentist to examine the tooth crown found on the water's edge. And they positively matched this to Hella's dental records. On this evidence, the Connecticut State Medical Examiner's Office issued a death certificate on January 13th of 1987. Richard is immediately arrested, 
And in preparation for the trial, the state medical examiner, a guy named Wayne Carver, who went by H. Wayne Carver, he takes a pig carcass and he feeds it through a wood chipper. The shape of and marks on the pig's bone chips after this process are similar to the shape of Hella's bone fragments. So this strengthens the hypothesis that Richard had used a wood chipper to dispose of his wife's body. So Richard Kraft's murder trial begins in May of 1988. It's in New London, Connecticut. Um, It had been moved there because of extensive local publicity. The case goes to a jury after 54 days at trial. On July 15th, 1988, the 17th day of jury deliberations, a single juror, the only juror that was in favor of acquittal, refused to continue with deliberations after 17 days. So the judge declared a mistrial. Later in 1989, they start this whole thing over again, uh, which ends on November 21st of 1989. The second trial ends with a guilty verdict. And Richard gets sentenced to serve 50 years in prison. Now, I will say that a couple years ago in 2020, Richard has been released and was living in a halfway house in Bridgeport. Um, He had been released early because of the the 1980 statutes on good time, which allowed for him to do certain things while incarcerated, um, including different types of jobs and to do uh, some programs. And as long as he had good behavior, his, you know, 50 years was chipped away at. So it had been listed that his maximum sentence would be uh, August 1st, 2020. And that would be when he was released, but he ended up being released on January 30th, 30th of 2020. So technically, This is the first murder conviction in the state of Connecticut without the victim's body. But I think that's sort of a misnomer. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I mean, I don't know that there's a a different case that would take the lead on that. But I would say they had quite a bit of evidence that um, being found not attached to the body. Yeah, that's, that's sort of like just because you have a body in pieces doesn't mean you don't have a body. Sure, and I mean, they found, uh, I, I can't, did they find, it's like, a lot. I, I felt like they found, um, like, half of one of her fingers, like, it was a pretty substantial. There, there were several pieces in there. MrPalermo.com had a, a, a snippet from Bodies of Evidence about this case. It just says case study, Richard Kraft's Woodchipper case. It sort of described like the rundown of this, but it also describes Henry Lee's involvement. And I think they were working with some larger pieces based on having read that. And also, have you ever used a, um, I have not a a wood chip. I use it. I use it to put fairly large branches and logs through, and I make mulch out of it. So, you know what the size of mulch is like, right? Yeah. That's basically what the body had been reduced to. But in my opinion, I don't think I don't think it would be reduced small enough that they could say there is no body. So I have a little bit of a disagreement with what they're saying there. Um, what this guy says here is uh, it's a horrific crime that thrusts the state of Connecticut into the national headlines. The wood chipper case involves sex, money, and a gruesome murder. The ingredients for a huge news story, and that case brought Dr. Henry Lee, the director of Connecticut's Forensic Science Laboratory, to the national spotlight. It's one of many cases that would make him one of the most respected forensic experts in the world. 
In the Woodchipper case, Lee and other members of his forensic team managed for the first time in Connecticut history to secure a murder conviction without a corpse, demonstrating in the process an uncanny ability to marshal several different forensic techniques in collaborative pursuit of a murderer who thought he had pulled off the perfect crime. Um, and it basically runs down what I just said. It says the case started in November 86 with the disappearance of Hella Crafts, a strikingly beautiful Danish born flight stewardess for Pan American Airlines who lived with her husband in upscale uh, Newtown, Connecticut, or Newton, Connecticut. Richard Crafts worked as a commercial airline pilot and had previously flown missions on Air America for the CIA. He was a man of adventure and intrigue. Richard Crafts went to the police saying his wife had gone away after an argument and never returned. That's not 100% true. It's actually a PI that does that. The police were prompted to file a missing person report. Friends of the missing woman alerted investigators she planned to divorce her husband and she was afraid for her life. That's sort of true. But here's, here's the interesting part. Uh, police began to suspect foul play. They had no evidence that a crime had been committed. Their suspicions increased when a witness came forward reporting they, they had been out plowing snow at 4 a.m., and they had observed Richard Crafts acting suspiciously. So, by running a wood chipper like during a massive snowstorm, <laughs> which, which that is, I don't think you can get more suspicious than that. Uh, the detectives found out that immediately before Helen Crafts was reported missing, her estranged husband had rented an Asflund Badger Brush Bandit uh, 100 model wood chipper an unusually large model for someone to be working like around their house. During the same period, he had gotten a new truck. Uh, he picked up a large Westinghouse freezer using an alias, by the way. He traveled outside of the immediate area and purchased other noteworthy items like a flathead shovel, rubber gloves. Further investigation revealed that Crafts had been cheating on his wife and exhibiting some bizarre behavior involving firearms. Police began to suspect he may have killed her, dismembered her body with a chainsaw, and shredded it through the uh, shredded the corpse through the wood chipper. Um, after routine searches turned up nothing, the police still lacking any body or blood to prove a murder had taken place. Doctor Lee set out to comb the possible crime scenes for biological traces or other physical evidence. When ordinary inspection failed to turn up any brown stains, Lee and his team methodically scoured the couple's home using more sophisticated methods. At several suspicious locations, Lee sprayed luminol. Um, that it's a mixture that can help investigators detect stains, especially that it detects the hemi portion of hemoglobin in red blood cells that are otherwise would be invisible to the naked eye. It, uh, they also tried to use TMB with uh, tetramethyl benzodiazepine, which is another blood enhancement reagent, and they were able to find several stains of typo blood, which was Helicraft's blood, and then they located. The wood chipper, and they went through the wood chipper. They went through the truck. They noticed that like there were items missing that should have been there. Uh, the box spring of the bed was missing, which caused uh, the lab to start hypothesizing that the crafts that crafts may have committed the murder on the bed and disposed of that part through the blood stains. Anyway, so they assembled all of this evidence, and they found these human blood spots. They found. 60, oh, more than 60 chips of bone, all that blood hair we talked about. And then, of course, which you have now sent me a picture of, thank you very much, uh, part of a finger that contained fingernail polish that matched the cosmetic uh, kit that was found in uh, Hella's home. Oh, that's in his crime lab book. Interesting. 
it's found in her home makeup kit, basically. So this evidence basically is is what gets him convicted. Uh, that comes out of Bodies of Evidence by Scott Christensen, MrPalermo.com had it, and then you have Henry Lee's Crime Scene Handbook, which apparently has photos of the finger as well. It's a wild story. I don't usually do, I don't usually skew this far to graphic, but I thought it kind of fit with what had happened with with Richard Kraft and how Henry Lee sort of fit into it. Um, I will say I've read the appeals on this case. Have you ever read them? For fun? Yeah, I have. I don't know how you fight any of this evidence, but it, it shocks me. This guy's out walking around. So, okay, he has a whole trial, and there is one holdout juror, right, that hangs the trial. Um, So, you know, one person was not convinced. Uh, And then uh, he's, you know, they have a retrial and he's convicted. So, you know, I would be curious to know what uh, the holdout was. I don't know. I don't know that I've ever seen it anywhere. I would be interested to know, like, what was the basis for the holdout? My understanding was that juror at the end of the holdout, like he just refused to return. He was like, I'm done. I'm not changing my mind. And that was it. Okay. So that's, that's one aspect of this that I find interesting. Like what was going on there? There has to be it more than I would, if I had to take a guess, I would say that uh, the holdout probably had more to do with the juror themselves than it did with the case. Okay. Could be, yeah. Just a guess. But um, for whatever reason, that happened. But, you know, it went on to another trial, and uh, he eventually was convicted. And he served all of his time according to what was required, and he got out, right? Um, He was in jail for a really long time. Like you said, he was living in a halfway house. So I guess what I think about when I think of this case is— do you think that he planned on killing his wife or that he killed her, like, because he got upset? Um, I think he probably, well, having looked at all the evidence in this, like, I think he had to have been planning to do something to her. I, like, you can't just make somebody disappear as you're, like, making all these plans for the wood chipper and the truck and, and the chainsaw. I feel like that was so frenzied, though, because... So here, so I thought uh, he probably killed her on accident um, or in a fit of rage because of the timing. Because if you're planning, uh, you know, this elaborate disposal, like you're not going to do it at four o'clock in the morning when it you're there's a massive snowstorm happening, right? Um, and so I felt like he was acting out of necessity as opposed to following a plan. The the issue is, I I have trouble connecting where that becomes a good plan. Oh, it's never a good plan. It, it's really because she didn't show up for Thanksgiving. By the way, that people were suspicious. She doesn't call home. She, her mom has been talking to her like either by phone or by letter like every day, and she's like she just disconnects from the world. That's the reason people start. He was not under as much pressure as he thought she was. Well, I think that the point was it happened and he needed to take care of the situation, right? Because he had no idea how it was going to unfold, right? Yeah. 
I don't see a situation. Uh, I have trouble seeing a situation where you're like, it, whether you've planned it or it happened by accident or in a fit of rage, it doesn't really matter. I don't see a situation where you're standing out at the river at 4 a.m. sending your wife's body through a wood chipper and having it, whatever happened. I don't see where I'm thinking to myself, this is so awesome. I'm going to get away with this. Yeah, no, he, like you're right. It's desperation. Yes, it's absolutely. And, but there's like, so you're saying, could this be more of a second degree situation with a, like a really terrible way to conceal the crime? Well, yeah. I mean, if you're going to follow the law, yeah. Like I, I think that, it is possible also, though, that he did plan it all out. I just find it really hard to believe that he did that to the mother of his children. And then because it's sort of a natural thing, like, oh, I killed her. I'm going to, you know, have to pay the consequences for this. Like, why put her through that extra agony and your children through that extra agony of because, I mean, it's it's a terrible thing, right? Uh, putting your wife. Yes. I don't think, you, you do not have to ask me if that's a terrible thing. That is like, that is it, it, even if you put a burglar through there who broke into your home and you just froze his body and put them through, that is still terrible. That is a messy, disgusting, graphic, terrible thing. Right. And so, uh, it, it was also a lot of work. It was a lot of work. He had to go rent it. And like, you know, this guy was a pilot, right? So I have trouble with that whole situation because I'm going, okay, a pilot has to know, you know, they have to be pretty intelligent. You would I think, think, yes. I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, and perhaps it was the lack of, maybe he really thought, like, if there's nobody, no crime was committed, right? And uh, because this was a novel case at that point in time. Maybe he really had no idea how much he was actually leaving behind, um, which it might have been a situation. Because nobody would think that now, right? Nobody would think, oh, let me run this body through the wood chipper. They'll never know it was here, right? Because, yeah. of course, they'll know it was there. They'll be able to find all kinds of evidence that you can't see with your naked eye. Um, but it'll be there and it'll be very obvious. And so maybe it was just a, a sign of the times with his thinking. And all he was trying to do is just, you know, make it so her body would never be found. And obviously deconstructing it is a way of doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what was going on. I mean, I be, so I don't have any questions in this case. When it comes to this, like, I think... Personally, I look at it and I go, that's pretty obvious what happened there. You know, this guy decided to kill his not quite, almost 40, so 30-some-year-old. I mean, I could definitely picture how this went down. And I think I think how I would end up siding with you on all of this is I think, like, it's one of those things where this guy can't control his temper and he's got that angry asshole streak. And he keeps getting right up to the edge of it, but she's hired a divorce attorney and a PI. That's Hella. She's alive when she does that. And when she says to him, I, you know, my PI has photos of you kissing the Jersey flight attendant. That's going to be a snap. Right. And so that's not planned, right? 
No, I don't think it's planned. I think he just lost it at that point. I mean, I think that the anger that comes from that, like, it's not going to be something that he's going to be like, okay, she's told me this and now I'm going to bide my time and kill her over it. Right. Because he was wrong. Like, as far as what he was doing. So I think it's more of a reactive type of thing. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely, I just, I can't get past the idea of like, like nobody looked at this and went, why is this guy buying this commercial or renting this commercial wood chipper? Why is this truck in the drive? Like nobody during that time looked at it and went, what? But well, the guy noticed, I mean, some the, the snowplow driver noticed it. It's just at the time it probably like, cause nobody knew she was missing. Nobody knew she would never be found. Nobody knew any of this stuff. And so he was probably like, you know, why is that idiot out there with a, with a wood chipper? And then he continued plowing snow, right? Yeah. Because, like, you know, who cares? It, and if all that guy had been doing was chipping wood, it wouldn't have made any difference. It still was a very bizarre thing to be doing. It, it definitely was a bizarre thing to be doing. This essentially happens the week before Thanksgiving. And I, I'm not laughing at all of this. I'm just saying... All right, this is the reason I brought it up. While this is happening, Henning's trial, like Henning and Birch, their trial is also sort of, like their case is also going on at the same time. If you look at this from the perspective of, okay, those guys get convicted in 1989. This guy gets convicted at the second trial in 1989. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Henry Lee missing the towel is probably because he was still counting 2,668 blonde hairs. I'm just saying, like, there is, in context, I I think personally that, like, I understand Henry Lee's position to some degree. Now, I think if he, he, mis- he could have misremembered something. Absolutely. I mean, he, like, no matter how you carve this up, he is sitting between two major cases. So you've got the death of Carr. Now, now given Carr's death takes place in 1985, the Crafts murder takes place at the end of 1986. But for Connecticut, which is not a very big place overall, this is a big deal for them to be working these two cases at the same time. And not only that, he has to do the Crafts case not once, but twice. Right. So I believe there's something to back up the idea that, like, we don't really besmirch Henry Lee. I don't think that gets the investigators off the hook that were you and the prosecutors that were using that setup to, for lack of a better word, to sort of railroad Henning and Birch. I feel like that was a very uh, that was a a group effort. Yeah, and I think to some degree, like, there's a lot of that group that sort of just took Henry for a ride. Now, what's weird is, like, Henry would still be up for felony murder. You know what I mean? Like, if he were the accomplice in the backseat that wasn't really doing anything, just riding along while the... Man, I just I, I just feel like I don't know what else happened in that trial. To me, like, his testimony didn't make or break. It wasn't a make or break moment for that case because it didn't. It could have been, he could have testified the exact same, uh, regardless of who the defendant was. Yeah. 
And so while it might be like bad testimony, I don't know that he should be held like he should be held liable for these particular defendants because it wasn't against them. And, you know, let's say he did just genuinely misremember um, it that that is not enough to show to to bridge the gap here. I, I, I don't see how a jury bought that. Well, I look, I didn't buy their case. There's obviously DNA evidence now. I sort of just wanted to give a contextualization of all this for audience members who care um, that I don't, you know, I don't want to come across like I'm defending Henry Lee. But if I recall correctly, Henry Lee testifies for the defense and the prosecution, depending on the case. Um, he does. Um, and I'm not trying to defend him either. I was just kind of thinking that. I mean, maybe it does sound like I'm trying to defend him, but I think that the whole case was bad. Like as far as um, the murder of Carr, right? Yeah, I really, I really hope that like, was bad. I hope that. Well, I mean, given the the amount of time that's passed, I don't think anybody. I hope there's DNA, pros- but I hope that prosecution team and those cops have all like just retired out. Oh, gone. I'm sure they have. That they was, do yeah. not. They do not need to be in the criminal justice system overall. It's it, like even to the point that, like, I get Henry Lee's the name that we attach to it all, and like everybody else's name is forgettable. Um, but I wanted to contextualize his role because I think that, like, like you said, this is sort of a team effort that they did here. Uh, it was a terrible team effort for what they were doing, but I don't think pulling Henry out of it, like, I, I agree 100%. You pull Henry out of there, I don't think that changes the fact that these guys still could have been convicted. Um, I do think that was the Hail Mary for the prosecutor, and I think the prosecutor definitely was the one of this whole group of people that knew they were just wandering around with some bullshit. Haven't you seen, um, I know that I've seen a plethora, and I can't give you a specific example right this moment, but there are a plenty out there of um, situations where you have defense or prosecution, either way, during a trial, uh, you've got the attorneys trying to guide and steer a witness into saying whatever it is they're trying to get them to say. Yeah, I mean, they're so the idea is they're asking their questions in a way that they get the answer that's best for their story. Right, and so I don't know, like, if, if something like that happened and, you know, cause if you're a forensic person sitting on the stand and they're saying, well, you know, you said this was blood, so you probably tested it. Right. And you're like, well, of course I did. Anything I think is blood I test. Right. Yeah. Um, and so if it's that kind of thing, like I just find it really different. Now I do not think that at first I was really disappointed uh, that Henry Lee had done this, but then as I looked further into it, I don't know what he actually did. I could think of a lot of ways that he could misdirect a trial that would be way more specific than this kind of thing, right? Even in 1989, right? I could totally see him looking at this and going, this doesn't even matter. Right. And so I'm, I'm not as disappointed. I, I, I feel like because he does usually do both sides, right? Um, he, he argues the truth, apparently. I mean, that's kind of what he says. But he's not always for the state or for the defense, right? He'll, yeah. He goes back and forth. And so I do think, you know, there is, it's a possibility more cases could come under scrutiny. Um, I would say that 
in the event that this type of thing has happened in more of his cases, it's going to be more of a reflection of a bad case as opposed to just bad expert testimony. Maybe. I, I, so I think you're probably right on that, but I definitely could see mistakes being uncovered. I don't want to, and that's the thing. I think eventually a pile of mistakes will start to look like misconduct, but I don't necessarily think this is misconduct, which I would totally well, use in my favor if I were like, if I, these were the defendants that I'm trying to get off, I would totally use it. But it sounds like a court has decided like he wasn't being uh, intentionally. Right. Uh, so they've already decided he did not perjure himself, right? Yeah, but the ability to be super vague is kind of one of Henry Lee's talents. Have you ever seen him testify? Like he's just he's being like blunt about it. Oh yeah, that's possible or that's possible also. Like he's super right. vague. But right. he, but like you said, this shouldn't have hinged on him to begin with. And you're right. I think the way that he is, weird as this is, I think it will end up uncovering cases that shouldn't really have been going to trial in the first place if there are mistakes that have been made. Well, right. And for the courts to come back and be like, well, we had the the forensic uh, test expert testimony indicating that there was a little bit of blood on this towel and that couldn't have been because he didn't test for it. And then they found out much, much, much later that that wasn't blood. And like, we're overturning your conviction because of that. I, it's crazy. Right. Well, isn't it though? Cause at first that, that's I, the thing. I mean, that's what, <laughs> like, that's the thing that like it, it bothers me is because like, they just sort of, uh, that judge did go far enough. He, he said, look, these other people, it's misconduct with you. I'm not so sure. But with Henry Lee, he gets a lot of passes. Like I did look up a lot of instances where judges have like given him a pass and they're like, I'm not going to say that you're lying, but I am going to say that you misplaced that item. And that I found three of those. And then like he became a consultant after a period of time. And I sort of looked at it and I went, how is he still actively with the state making this money, selling these books and a consultant? And I'm not saying that he's doing anything from a misconduct perspective. I'm saying, how do you keep that schedule up? Well, I think he's in his 80s now. That's what I mean. I mean, how do you keep that schedule? That's like steering it, I guess. Well, that's all I got for the Henry Lee uh, conversation. You got anything else you want to throw on there? No, I am interested to see if anything else comes out about it. But I I feel like it's uh, being sensationalized. I think Uh, your perspective is the best approach. Like if, if he is the linchpin in your case, and it's going to cause your case to fall apart. You didn't have much of a case to begin with. That shouldn't have happened. It really shouldn't have. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. I got you something for the outro today. You want to know what I got you? Sure. Warren Maskell. This is from July 18th of 1988. The juror who forced a mistrial in the case of a former airline pilot accused of killing his wife and shredding her body 
and a wood chipper, said the panel voted unanimously at one point to convict the defendant. But Warren Maskell, 47 years old, said he later changed his mind and voted to find Richard Kraft innocent, despite insults and pressure from other jurors, because his conscience was bothering him. And that's when the pressure really turned. Maskell told uh, United Press International, which this is a UPI article from back then, uh, in a telephone interview on Sunday. There were no other verdicts for me. If he, if we had held out for two months, I would have voted the same. Kraft, 50, a former Eastern Airlines pilot, was charged with killing his flight attendant wife, Hella, 39, in November of 1986 after she threatened to divorce him and then disposing of her body with a chainsaw and a rented wood chipper. The prosecution tried to identify the victim through tiny bits of human skin, flesh, and teeth found by police in a pile of wood chips on the banks of the Housatonic River. The prosecution was the first in Connecticut without a body, which I'm just going to firmly dispute that. Uh, Maskell is a carpenter who lives in Norwich. Uh, He forced a mistrial Friday night after a state record 17 days of deliberations where he refused to consider the case further. I don't just think they failed to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't think Richard Crafts killed his wife, Maskell said. I just don't think he did it. Maskell, who got into an auto accident and broke two of his ribs soon after the case went to the jury, said he was in constant pain during deliberations and had trouble sleeping because of the injuries. I really felt drained last week, he said. He said he decided to call a hot to the deliberations after an angry juror swore at him and told him he had three choices. I was told I could go out there and agree with them even though I didn't or stay there forever until I changed my vote. Or he said, you can walk in there yourself and tell the judge you couldn't make up your mind, said Maskell. That's when I started looking at the door. Maskell said he'd been flooded with hundreds of phone calls since the mistrial was declared, most of them from angry people saying such things as, how does it feel to let a killer go? Or they ought to burn you, you SOB. But he said on Sunday he began receiving almost as many calls of support as opposition, including some from people who had also been holdouts on other juries. It made me feel a little better that the balance had tipped, said Maskell. People don't realize they're not attacking me. They're attacking our jury system. Maskell said he voted early in the deliberations in favor of acquittal, but said he changed his mind on July 9th and cast a guilty vote, temporarily producing a unanimous verdict. One juror kept saying, God is trying to tell you you're wrong through the auto accident. So I voted guilty because I was through taking I was through taking their insults. I just wanted to get out of there. But after a lunch break, Maskell said another juror changed his vote to innocent. And after considering his vote switch over the weekend, Maskell said he decided to vote for acquittal fo- uh, the following Monday, and he never wavered again. I told them there was reasonable doubt on every point and that there couldn't be a guilty verdict if there was reasonable doubt. But I finally decided it wasn't my job to change their minds and get insulted for telling them what I believed. That's his perspective, according to what he says in an interview. What do you think of that? Uh, well, I think that I I was, I mean, my perception was right. It was more about the juror than the case, right? Um, yeah. he, he was having his own set of issues there. And um, I do see where, for I I. I believe one million percent uh, that he should not have changed his vote uh, because he was being pressured into changing it. Um, That's so important um, because that's how our jury system is set up, right? Um, But at the same time, I also, you have to watch for um, people who are specifically not changing their vote because they are being pressured. 
there are these rebellious people in the world, <laughs> myself included, uh, that will, it's the mountain they're going to die on if somebody tries to, um, <laughs> tries to change their mind, right? Uh, they double down and, and then it becomes this thing where it's like, it doesn't even matter if I think he's innocent or not. I'm never going to change my vote. I don't know if you have any experience with that, but people do that sometimes. And I think that that from listening to him talk, you know, it, it could have possibly been something like that, but it didn't end up mattering. Um, I do think that you have to be nice um, on juries and like, I don't know what that ultimatum was all about <laughs> where they said that he could either uh, change his mind or be in there forever. <laughs> um, that wasn't very nice. Uh, the solution to people not getting along is that, you know, ultimately they uh, hang the jury. Mm -hmm.